Hi, this is Pastor Joshua Morocco, and you are listening to our King's Central Podcast. I hope you get encouraged. I hope the Word of God brings transformation to your life and empowers you. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the Word. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Would you do that? We've been doing a series entitled, It's Time to Grow Up. Turn to your neighbor and say, It's Time to Grow Up. We began last Sunday with that particular theme, and then Sunday night we continued as we studied Ephesians 4 on putting off and putting on, and today we want to talk on passing elementary school. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. I want us to begin by reading chapter 5, taking in a little bit of what we read last week, verse 13 and following. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That word there is teleos. It means mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. There, that word again is teleos. It means maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you desire us to grow to grow in the knowledge of you, to do good works, to be what you want us to be, to be conformed into your image. And I pray, Holy Ghost, you'd come upon me in power and in might, and that today you would allow all of us to have ears to hear and a heart to respond and eyes to see. I pray when we leave today, we would leave knowing what we need to do in order to become what you want us to be. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come upon me and give me great liberty in sharing your word, the word that you put on my heart. I pray you give us an understanding mind to understand truth that would set us free. And Lord, may this day be a day where we draw near to you and you would be pleased and glorified as a result. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before you get into junior high or high school, you've got to pass elementary school. And hopefully you'll be able to have learned to read and to write and to have the basic understanding of math and to have a basic understanding of the world in which you live, which is primarily the job of elementary teachers to teach their students. The tragedy is when somebody gets through elementary school and junior high and high school and still can't read or write and doesn't know any math and you wonder what happened. Well, I don't have all the answers to that, but over the last 50 years of my ministry, whether it was here in Maui or in Honolulu or in California, there have been people that have come to me that have exactly had that happen, where they went all the way through school, couldn't read, couldn't hardly write, and you said, well, what happened to them? Well, they came to the Lord, and when they came to the Lord, it was amazing what happened. God rearranged their brain. They began to read the Bible, and they learned to read by reading the Bible. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And today, many of them are very, very successful because God's hand was upon them. Somehow, 
they were able through the power of the Holy Spirit to learn those things they didn't learn earlier in life. Now here in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer encourages his audience to grow up, to grow up into maturity, being able to distinguish between good and evil, which is absolutely essential in our world today. We've talked about how so many things are very, very confusing. We talked about it last week, how if you can change the name of something, you can make it acceptable to people. For example, instead of fornication today, it's called premarital sex or sexually active. And what they've tried to do is take something that is clearly sin and change the name of it so that people think it's okay. And they do that all the way down the line with many aspects of evil in our world. And if you as a believer don't know what's right or wrong, you're going to be caught in a web, a web of delusion and deceit. So it's important for us to grow up and mature. In fact, here in this text as we read it, the writer of Hebrews is telling us of some essential principles that his readers already know about. And he says, look, since you already know about it, I'm not going to go over them. Well, when I was reading this, I'm not assuming what the writer of Hebrews assumed. In fact, when I read the six things in this text, I realized that some of our people are like those folks who, even though they were in elementary school, they never learned some basic things. And it's been amazing to me what the Holy Spirit's been doing. Starting last week, as you know, we began this series on It's Time to Grow Up, and I wasn't aware of it when the Holy Spirit spoke to me about doing the series that Pastor Josh had begun a series entitled Back to Basics, and on Wednesday night he's been sharing some profound things about what believers need to know. So you need to be there. You need to be a part of it. Because God's going to make you strong. As long as you stay a child, a baby, you're very vulnerable. You're vulnerable to deceit. You're vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. It's time to grow up, become strong in God, putting on his full armor and standing strong in this evil day and advancing the kingdom of God. And that's what being in church is all about. Somebody say amen. Now to the writer of Hebrews, he mentions there are six elementary principles. Now you might ask, well, pastor, why six? Well, remember he's writing to the whole church, but especially to Jews because he's deeply concerned to help the Jews in light of the fact that Jewish believers have been put under a lot of pressure by Jews who did not believe in Jesus and realized that in many towns, the Jews, Jewish community was a close-knit community. And therefore, when somebody believed on the Messiah, it disrupted so much that so there was a lot of pressure put on those early Jewish believers in Jesus. And so he begins to talk about the six elemental principles. Now, these six elemental principles were really principles that were Pharisaic Judaism. That is, they were principles the Pharisees believed in. And he is saying to them, look, the six principles are there in Christianity, but they've been redefined, and you need to know their redefinition. So he starts with the first two, and let me mention what they are. The first two are repentance and repentance from dead works or acts that would lead one to death and faith in God. Everybody say repentance. Everybody say repentance and faith in God. 
Now you may think those things are easily understood and that many people know them, but there's one word that has not been used a lot in the last 30 or 40 years. I remember times as a boy growing up in church where the service didn't end without people coming to the front and repenting of sin. The biggest part of the service was what they call the altar service. And as a boy, I remember many a time as a boy going to the front and being at the altar and allowing the Holy Spirit to come upon me and, and I would pray and I would repent of sin or whatever it was that the Holy Spirit had, had affected me in that prayer time. But we don't see too much of that anymore. In fact, there's not a lot of pe- preaching on repentance anymore. But repentance is basic to the Christian life. In fact, the word for repent in the Greek language is metanoeo. Now, let me tell you a little bit about that word and the corresponding word for repentance, metanoia. Both of those words have the same meaning. It means a change of mind. Everybody say it with me. A what? Say it again. A what? Now, repentance is a radical act. It's radical. It's, it's a radical change. It's not just, oh, I, I, I'm going to change this. No, it's radical in nature because it's a transformation of thought. It's a transformation of attitude. It's a transformation of your outlook on life. And it's a transformation even of your direction. It's what I call a revolution. You're walking this way, you come meet Jesus, and all of a sudden you're going this way with him. It's like what happened to Paul the Apostle. He wasn't Paul the Apostle then. He was Saul of Tarsus on his way to arrest Christians for their faith in the city of Damascus, and he meets the risen Lord. Jesus appears to him. He is so radically changed that it shook the Jews there in Damascus. You think about it for a bit. He's talking about the fact that repentance is the basis of our Christian faith. Paul, for example, there in Acts 26, 15, Jesus spoke to him on the Damascus road. And he said to him, uh, he was to go to the Gentiles that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me that he was to go to them, preach a message of repentance so they could be forgiven of sin and have the same inheritance as the people of God. In Acts 26, 20, Paul shared with both Jews and Greeks what they should hear, and that was repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. You see, repentance is godly sorrow. Now, there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. It's the difference between someone who repents like David or like even Peter and somebody who, like Esau, is into himself or like Judas who ends up killing himself. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Paul the Apostle talks about it in 2 Corinthians 7. Listen to what he says in verse 10 and 11. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, leaves no regret, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So see what This godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, 
What readiness to see justice done. He's saying godly sorrow produces a fruit of righteousness. You're not just sorry that you got caught for your evil. You're sorry that you literally hurt someone. You hated what you did. And you grieved over hurting God and others. Now, you see, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You cannot understand faith without understanding repentance. So let's take a look at the other side of the coin. We've looked at repentance for a moment, but let's take a look at faith. Faith toward God. It's putting your trust in and committing your life to Christ. It's not just a nice prayer. It's a prayer that moves you to saying, I'm going to live for Jesus. It's asking him to be the Lord of every area of your life. And repentance is a vital part of faith because for if you don't know you're lost, you'll never be found. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. If you don't think you're lost, you're in trouble. I remember as a boy in Dallas, Texas, we were new there. We just bought a home and we were living there and I had to walk to school and on my way back I got dropped off at school but I looked at the area of how I was supposed to walk home, but somehow I got lost. And I'll never forget knocking on a door, crying. I must have been probably about eight years old. And I was crying, saying, I don't know where I live. I didn't know the address. I didn't know any, didn't know any phone numbers. I was a mess. God in his mercy salvaged that situation. But I knew what it felt like to be lost. If you don't know you're lost and you're on your way to hell, you'll never be saved. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They thought they were so righteous. They didn't need Jesus. And Jesus called them hypocrites, whitewashed sepulchers, full of stinking bones. True repentance is a hatred of sin and grief over hurting God and others. And faith toward God is putting your trust in and committing your life to Christ. And it's a vital part of faith, repentance. I pray that all of you will realize your need for Christ. In fact, it's when we realize we don't deserve God's mercy that we receive His mercy. That's called grace. One of the verses I memorized years ago was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And that Sermon on the Mount opens with what's called the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 and following. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You say, what in the world does that mean? It means blessed are those who realize they have no currency by which to buy God's grace. They are poor when it comes to God. But it's God's mercy and grace that brings them salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When you realize you have nothing and you need him, then comes grace. Wow. Faith is more than I believe God exists. James, in the book of James, writes, even demons believe that and tremble. It's more than just saying, I believe God exists. It's, are you serving him? Is he the Lord of your life? Have you received what he did for you when he died and rose again? Have you been redeemed by the blood of the lamb? Now here's what's interesting. The second set of principles, there are two of them as well. One is called the doctrine of baptism and the other is the laying on of hands. 
And you wonder, how in, those, how in the world do those two relate together? Well, let's start with baptisms. Now, you'll notice that it's plural, baptisms, not just baptism. And the reason is that when the writer of Hebrews is writing this, there were many kinds of baptisms beyond the Christian baptism. In fact, today, where I was born in India, you'll have people that will wash in the Ganges River. It's a part of their ceremony of cleansing. You'll notice, for example, that if a Jew uh, wanted to help a non-Jew become a Jew, one of the principles that they would have to go through is, if I was a Gentile and I wanted to become a Jew, one of the ceremonies I'd go through is a baptismal ceremony to become a Jew. Every Jew knew that, and that's why what was so interesting, and that's why they got so upset with John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was preaching to Jews, and he was telling them, you need to repent and be baptized. They're saying the Pharisees got mad at him and said, now wait a minute. We're Jews. Our father is Abraham. We're chosen people. God God loves us because he chose us above all the people of the world. We're so great. We don't need to repent. We're chosen. And John said, you're a sinner. You need to repent. You need to prepare the way for the Messiah who is coming. And he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. He will come to not only empower you, but he will come to bring judgment. Wow. You'll notice that's why they accused John of of being off the wall. That's why they didn't want to hear him. But the people responded. Fourthly, there were the Essenes in the Qumran community. They were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they had ritual baptisms. They believed in not only being clean spiritually, but physically as well. And then you come to Christian baptism, which is different than all of them. You say, well, what is that? Christian baptism became the outward sign of your inward faith. In fact, in the book of Acts, there were so many different kinds of baptisms that when someone became a Christian, they were baptized, it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't mean that that was the thing they said when they baptized him, it just meant to distinguish them between Jesus' baptism and John's baptism and the Essene baptism and the baptism when you became a Jew. This was a special baptism. You were joining your life with Christ. The only particular thing we are to say when we baptize people is what Jesus told us to say at the end of the book of Matthew when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice in that phrase in Matthew 28, it's not names of, it's name. It's the three in one. God through Christ, is now revealed to the world who He really is. He's the Father who is Creator, who loves us with an everlasting love. He is the Son who came to redeem us and restore us back to the Father and deal with that which separated us from God, our sin. And thirdly, He's the Holy Spirit who is with us, who empowers us, who guides us, who directs us, who comforts us, who strengthens us. Wow! It is amazing. 
That is the God we serve. How awesome is that? How awesome, how awesome is that? Well, you'll also notice that when you're dealing with baptism, you're also dealing with the fact that we're dealing with an immersion. They went into the water. When it talks about John's baptism, when Jesus was baptized, you go into and out of it. It's an interesting thing. It's not only in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it represents something that's happened to the person who's being baptized. You'll notice this because you cannot baptize yourself. There's always somebody to baptize you. Now, why is that? It's because it is a prophetic picture that we will walk in newness of life in that we will continually be dependent upon God. We will have His grace. It's a picture of one of grace, a dependence on God Himself for your entire life. Just as you were dependent on someone to baptize you and hopefully He didn't leave you under the water, but He'd bring you up. So you're dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ every day of your life. That brings me to the final act of baptism, which is found in Romans chapter 6. Everybody turn there for just a moment because it's a profound verse that tells us how God views baptism and how we should view it, Christian baptism. Paul writes about it in Romans 6, and he writes in verses 1 through 4. Look at it with me. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what he's saying is, when you go under the water, it's a picture that you have died. Your past is gone. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. He says, look, when you're baptized, it's not just the fact that you are declaring to the public what's happened in you when you believed, when you repented and believed on Jesus. You're now saying, I am dead, my old man is dead. That's why Paul could say, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I'm dead, but as you come up out of that water, you are declaring that the resurrection of Jesus is now a work in me, and I have new life. Everybody say, I have new life. Oh my, somebody ought to be excited. You say, well, pastor, how does the laying of hands, how does the laying of hands tie with baptism? Now that's a good question. First off, to be baptized, somebody's going to have to lay hands on you, right? But here's, here's an interesting thought. What happened to Jesus at his baptism? Anybody remember? The Father spoke, right? Anything else happened? The Holy Spirit came as a dove, right? At his baptism, correct? Now think about that for a moment. And you will notice that baptism... And the infilling of the Holy Spirit are associated with each other. 
Listen to what Peter says in Acts 2, 38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the baptism in water is a doorway that God is saying, I have more for you. And one of the things I have for you is the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 3.19. Peter Peter says, repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's saying, look, God has his presence for you. God has his power for you. When you're baptized in water, it's a declaration. Hey, you are brand new life, and now God wants to breathe in you even greater things. His, pur- his presence, his purpose, his power. Oh, my, my, my. Baptism is a public sign of conversion. And as a believer, God yearns to give you his power, the power of the Holy Spirit to work in your life. You don't have to necessarily be baptized before you can get filled with the Spirit because we see in Acts 10 that Cornelius' household got filled with the Holy Ghost before they got baptized. That was a unique case, but the idea behind it is is just as the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, so it is important for you to realize the moment you give your heart to the Lord, there is so much in God that is waiting for you if you but just receive. You say, well, you say, well, pastor, um, I don't understand how these two work together, baptism and the laying on of hands, this work of the Holy Spirit. Well, let me, let me just suggest something to you. When you read Acts 19, there's an interesting story. The Apostle Paul comes upon some people he thinks are disciples, and he asks them a very serious question. He says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Now, he's talking to what he thinks is believers, and they said, we don't even know there be a Holy Spirit. And he says, wait a minute, hold a stop. Under who you were you baptized? They said, we were baptized under John. He said, now John baptized for repentance. And then he begins to talk to him about Jesus and the need for salvation and how John pointed to Jesus as the Savior of the world. So they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Then he laid hands on them and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And that's where this laying of hands comes in with baptism because here's what's happening. The laying on of hands is a visible picture of an impartation of the Holy Spirit operating through someone to bless another person, the laying on of hands. And when you study the laying on of hands, you'll notice in the Old Testament as well as in the New, there were certain reasons for the laying on of hands. It was literally the power of the Holy Ghost flowing through someone to bless another. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. For example, if you're raising up leadership in the church, you'll notice that there was a moment where hands were laid on the leader and there was an impartation of the Holy Spirit, an empowering on that person by the Holy Spirit for the task that they would be called to do. We do that right here at our church. When we bestow a title like minister on someone, 
There's a pastor that lays hands on them and they pray. And I've seen it happen time and time again. It's not the title that makes them a minister. It's the power of the Holy Ghost that comes on them. And all of a sudden, they, uh, they're elevated profoundly. When they become a pastor in this house, I'll lay my hands upon them. There's an impartation that happens. That impartation is so real that there are moments that I, I can hardly stand the power. I mean, I've had pastors that have, that have flipped out all the way down the, down the stairs. I've had people, I mean, it's just, and it's like sticking my finger in an electric light socket at times. And people want to talk to me after it. I can't handle it. This is not a little game. There is real power that happens with an impartation by the laying on of hands for leaders. Secondly, you'll notice, for example, that, and you'll notice in the Old Testament, I mean, that you saw this, Moses was commanded to lay his hands on Joshua, and, and you'll notice in the New Testament, Paul laid his hand on the elders of the church and put them into place. He talked to Timothy about what happened when hands were laid upon him. But secondly, you'll notice that the laying on of hands is seen as having the Holy Spirit gifts of healing uh, being imparted to another. You'll notice it says in the scriptures, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. People were constantly trying to touch Jesus. Jesus would reach his hands out to people and touch him. He would touch the leper, which was illegal to do. But he was the, he was the Messiah. He was the Holy One. He made that unclean person clean. Are you hearing me? He would touch the blind man. He would put his fingers in the ears of a deaf man and say, be opened. He would, he would take the hand of a dead girl and raise her up to life. He would lay his hands upon Peter's mother-in-law and rebuke the fever. The laying on of hands, it was a picture of the power of the Holy Spirit being released through a person to bless another. You'll notice, for example... A third thing about the laying on of hands is seen when one is praying for another to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll see it there in Acts chapter 8. Philip had this great revival. It was so profound that even Simon the magician uh, uh, was impressed and desired to, to and, and literally got baptized and followed Philip around, became a part of the church. He wasn't all right. He had some problems and it wasn't discovered until Peter and John came up to lay hands on people and they got filled with the Spirit and he wanted to buy the power of the Holy Ghost. He wanted to still be a magician and control power. And he was condemned for it. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit is real. When Paul, uh, his name was Saul, on his way to arrest Christians in Damascus, met the risen Lord. He was converted on that road to Damascus. And then God sent a man by the name of Ananias to lay hands on him so that he would be filled with the Holy Ghost. Today there's going to be a moment in our service where I'm going to invite people to come near the end of this service to have hands laid on them. Some of you will come to be filled with the Spirit. Some of you will come for healing. Some of you will come because you, you realize your need to repent and be saved and want to serve the Lord with power. You see, God's speaking to us today. 
To be a Christian is to be a new creation. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. You know, one of the movies I really have enjoyed, because I like the music, is uh, The Greatest Showman. Anybody saw that movie? They, whoever wrote some of those songs, I think they would make good gospel songs. One of them is that little song, Everything You Ever Want, Everything You Ever Need is here in front of you. You say, you mean you remember that song? I was thinking about it while I was writing the sermon. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying everything you'd ever want in life, everything you'd ever need is standing right in front of you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I've come! that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Everything you ever want, everything you ever need, it's in him. Why would we go and try to find life in places that are dead? Secondly, I believe God is speaking to you about repentance and faith in God. That shouldn't be just a one-time thing. It should be a lifestyle. Repentance should be normal and natural for every believer. If you blow it, you ask for forgiveness, and you do it quickly. If you want to have a good marriage, you better learn how to say, I'm sorry. Well, I've never had to say, I'm sorry. Well, you're just plain stupid, that's all. Because we all make mistakes. We've all done stupid things. We've all done dumb things. As long as you keep that evil in you, it will control you. But the moment you bring it out in the open, that which is darkness becomes light as it's manifested by the light as you bring it to the Lord. As you confess your sin, you free yourself from the power of the enemy to control you by that evil. Repentance allows you to do that. It should be an ongoing thing. And faith in God. There's a verse of Scripture that always challenges me. According to your faith, be it done unto you. We were talking about it today. Even in the goals of our giving. When you set a goal to give a certain amount of money, what you're doing is you're setting a goal. That's your faith. It's your hope. You're saying, God, help me to do this. When you, when you cry out to God for strength so that you can do a particular task, you're, you're putting your faith in God. When, you, when, you, when you're in a situation where everything seems to have gone haywire and you're praying and you're crying out to God, you're putting your faith in God, believing that He will make a difference in that situation. It's an ongoing thing. The 41 years I've been your pastor, I've seen God move beyond comprehension. Who would have dreamed 41 years ago that on Maui there'd be a church that's touching people in 17 nations and 20 states, ministering to thousands and thousands of people every single day? It's hard to even imagine it back then. But as we continued to walk by faith, He continued to do the miracles. And he'll do it for you. He'll do it for you time and time and time and time again. 
we are to desire to be not only physically baptized, but spiritually baptized and have the Spirit of God work in our lives. Listen to me, friend. Please, please hunger for more of God. Hunger for more of God. You see, I don't want you to be a baby any longer. You're very vulnerable when you're a baby. God's desire is for you to grow up, to know His ways, to have His power at work in you. So when the enemy comes in like a flood, he can raise up a standard against it. And that standard could be you. If there's anything that our world needs today, it's people like you, full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost, full of His power, standing strong in this evil day. I'm here to tell you, you better grow up quick. A lot of things are happening in our world today that seem mind-boggling. It's not just a COVID pandemic. This may be the beginning of many pandemics. But it's not just that, it's the rise of evil so greatly that even in schools, even in elementary schools, even all the way down to first grade, things are being taught to our students that would have never even been dreamed of even teaching to college kids of sexuality and stuff that is so evil. It's a little, it is literally destroying the minds of a whole generation. You can't even imagine it. Friend, if you don't grow strong in God, you will not make it. That's just the way it is. My job is to help you grow. I pray that you will grow big and strong in God. When I was a boy, I used to have a guy by the name of Atlas. Do you remember Atlas, Mark? You probably, I don't know if you were that young. But Atlas was this kid who started working out with weights and became a, became a bodybuilder, you know, and he'd have all these muscles. And I remember, oh, I said, oh, yeah, that's what I want to be. So when I got to college and was playing football, I had to have some muscles anyway. So I started working out and working out and working out and working out. And boy, I had some muscles. Woo, I could lift some weight. Then I got older. And I didn't work out like I used to. Those muscles turned to fat. And now I fill out huge suits. You might think there's muscles there. There used to be. But they've atrophied. I don't want that to happen to you spiritually. I want you to be strong all the way to the end. So I'm going to start working out again physically. And I'm going to try to get those muscles back. It's going to be harder, but I'm going to get them back. By God's grace, I'm going to look like Mark. Praise God. But I want you to be strong spiritually. I don't care if you're skinny, tall, short, fat. It don't matter to me. Are you strong? Are you growing in God? Are you mature? Do you know the difference between right and wrong? Do you really understand where we are in the world and what we need to be doing as believers? That's what I want for you. That's what God desires for you. And that's what you can be. Stand to your feet. Lift both hands in the air. Let's praise Him for a moment. Would you I hope the word encouraged you. Thank you so much for joining us here on the King Central Podcast. God bless you. Walk in power and walk in the fullness of that which God has given you.